Before we get started on today's Scrum Podcast, I wanted to let you know that you, dear Scrum listener, are going to have a chance to be in the studio audience for the first and only televised one-on-one debate between Martha Coakley and Charlie Baker. It's happening on October 21st here at the WGBH Studios in Brighton. We have just six tickets, and I'll have details about how you can get your hands on one of those seats next week. All right, let's get started. Each week on The Scrum, we talk about politics and media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. It's October 1st, 2014, and this week we're back in the studio here at WGBH. I'm reporter Adam Riley, and with me are Peter Kadzis, the senior editor of WGBHnews.org. Peter, hello. Hey. We also have WGBH's political analyst, David Bernstein. Hey, David. How are you doing? So we have a bunch of good stuff to talk about today, but I want to start, David, with your piece in the latest issue of Boston Magazine Mm. in which you take the measure of Charlie Baker 2.0 and find him not really all that different from Charlie Baker 1.0, who ran and lost uh, for the governor's job four years ago. So they – he – specifically in the campaign generally, has been pushing this narrative that it's a new Charlie. Forget that old Charlie. You know, don't pay any attention to what happened in 2010 because this is the real one. And and I really wanted to sort of get behind that. Well, what does that mean? What did he do that he now is disavowing or what, you know, is different? Uh, is he disavowing it or is he just grown or what? And uh, I found that there's not much different. I mean, he's nice. I, I've always found him to be nice, pleasant. Did you, you know, think he to... was not nice last time around? Because I, I kind of thought his anger, alleged anger, was overstated. I, I thought so, too. I, and I thought that um, what they're trying to do is say, oh, all of your bad associations with 2010 was just about this consultant thing about, you know, the angry white man vote. And, you know, the they had the, this catchphrase for a while of the uh, had enough, you know, um, uh, but it really wasn't about that. But they're saying like, that's all it was. So forget everything about 2010. And what I'm sort of getting at uh, is that it's a lot more complicated about that. And this, this is really a marketing strategy, no more than had enough was a marketing strategy four years ago. What kind of reaction have you gotten to the piece from the uh, Baker people? Let's start with. I haven't really gotten any pushback yet from the Baker folks. I don't know what they're saying internally, but I haven't I haven't heard anything negative. Uh, I, I certainly um, get the sense that some of the folks uh, at the Democratic Party headquarters seem to be, you know, gleeful about little bits and pieces of it. Not that I have any particularly kind words from Martha Coakley. Yeah, I was going to say that seems like kind of a selective reading of the story, as I recall it, because I I thought you made a really important point before when you said in the last gubernatorial race, you didn't think Charlie was that much of an ogre. No, I really I have to agree with you. I think that, you know, maybe 15 percent of what the anti-Baker spin was before was probably true. I mean, I'm pulling that figure from the air. But I think the whole press corps then in in somewhat now we get we easily succumb to um, the narratives that are spun by the various political spinsters. And if I, I can, David's mm-hmm. trying to take a deep breath together more than edgewise. <laughs> and I think what it is is with Charlie Baker, we don't quite buy, you know, we'll, we'll abide by the narrative. But um, I didn't buy the last narrative, and I don't particularly buy this. Right. And, and, and by think... the way, I do buy, I think Charlie Baker's, you know, a solid policy guy. Well, and I think the first of all, yeah, the, you know, the reason that he lost was other things other than this 
than what he's trying to blame it on now. And I'm, I'm trying to say that essentially he's trying to create this thing of, oh, I lost because of this bad strategy of being the angry white man, when that really wasn't the case. They tried to make me be someone that I'm not really. Right, right. This is what I argue. He's trying to wash away some real actual things that that did play a part. I mean, mostly it was that, you know, the economy was improving, so Deval Patrick was becoming more popular, and that, that yeah. was a big piece. But it was also true that uh, the Charlie Baker campaign, like a lot of campaigns in 2010, uh, because there was this perceived sort of Tea Party uh, conservative uh, wave, was playing uh, more conservatively. He w- he His approach uh, to the economy, which was the big issue at the time, was very austere, you know, was very cut back, cut back, balanced budget above all, you know, cut spending, cut jobs. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, very Let, anti-union rhetoric. Let's uh, cut five thousand jobs right. at a moment when unemployment right. was really Which, high. That was and, a bonehead move. Well, and that's you know, and 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 taking on the unions, not just the public employee unions, but the trade unions as the enemy, which hurt him. Um, and, and other ways, you know, that came out in the debates also uh, that that really turned people off in terms of. What the act, what he would actually do with office, and and what I tried to do in this piece and in the interview was to sort of come back and and try to get him to address. Well, it's not just about you smiling. What about that five thousand jobs? What about the labor unions? What, you were a what, five 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 guy then, right? Which, which five, Jim O'Sullivan has a terrific piece uh, yes. in the Globe today, uh, bringing that up. The campaign seems to feel, and I think has been successful so far, in sort of washing all of that away. But this. You know, this last four or five weeks of the campaign, this is when it's going to be harder and harder and harder for him to avoid because the press is going to come in harder and harder and harder. You know, and when I asked him, you know, do you still think it was the right thing to cut 5,000 jobs? He said, I, 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 that's not relevant anymore. I don't have to address that question. <laughs> yeah, that was relevant. quite a quote. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. Well, Dave. In, in, in a way, I, I understand what he meant by it's not relevant. That was that campaign. See, I think that presupposes citizens, the average voters, really remember all this thing. I'm not insulting their intelligence. They're focusing on this year. No, I I, I agree with that. I I think that's why uh, the press is going to take it upon itself, as I did, for instance, in this piece, of saying, saying, if you're going to to make the premise— that you are a different candidate. What does that mean? Did you stop believing those things? Yeah, but listen, I, I, I'll tell you, what drives me crazy, and this is true of the Republican attacks, some of the Republican attacks on Obama, this constantly looking backwards. Oh, you said this, you know, six months ago. You said that six years ago. Come on, you know, the election is about looking forward. What bugs me is that neither candidate, although Coakley in particular, has really in any convincing sort of way looked forward. So it, it, it really bugs you when candidates, whether it's Charlie Baker or the president, or uh, I shouldn't say candidates, candidates, politicians are, are confronted with, you know, you said X, four years ago or eight years it, ago, and now you're saying something diametrically no, opposed. It, How can you explain it, it, that tension? It bugs me. It's a matter of degree. Mm-hmm. It's when that comes to dominate the discussion. The, the thing here, too, is campaigns are now totally divorced from reality. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's the Democratic narrative and there's the Republican narrative. The, the Republicans have decided to go with Charlie 2.0. And in a way, I can see why, even though it's based on a false premise— if you look at how Massachusetts has voted in, in state elections, back when Weld was elected, there were red and blue spots all over the state. You know, 
Greater Boston was heavily blue, but the rest of the state was modeled. Now you've got the left and the, the, the western part of the state's blue, the right part of the state's blue, and the middle's largely red. Bill Weld could run as a sort of genial, sometimes conservative, sometimes liberal guy. Charlie Baker is running in an overwhelmingly democratic state. Yes, we're all independents now, but we're all independents who always vote democratic, except in those like weird, wacko years when Scott Brown gets elected. We saw how long he lasted. See, I'm I'm going to throw a different theory. Uh, uh, I would say that while it has become a, a more consistently blue state, in certain elections. I don't know that that's changed in gubernatorial elections. And I think that the closing of the gap, which is not surprising, although the, the amount that it's closed and the speed with which it's closed uh, is a little surprising. But You're talking uh, about in the polls? In the polls, you know, that, that clearly we're now at a dead heat with a little bit of an advantage to, to Baker. But I always expected this to be close. I, I thought this would be a toss-up race with Baker having a slight advantage. And, and I'll tell you what I think is, is the, the sort of the grand theory of the last quarter century at least of gubernatorial elections here in Massachusetts. The voters, when specifically looking at gubernatorial elections, they balanced two particular things. One is which of the two uh, nominated candidates will be best at represent, do I trust to represent my values, which the presumption goes to the Democrat, but ultimately, it's it's not like a U.S. Senate race where you just the Republicans can't overcome it. It's it does ultimately come down to the individual candidate. But the presumption begins with the Democrat, and the other is who has the independence from those sort of webs of interconnecting nonsense of Beacon Hill. Who's the outsider, and and that again the presumption begins with the Republican, but again comes down to the individual. So you can and, have, say, a Deval Patrick insurgent Democrat who's able to say, what I'm I would not say the is, Deacon Hill What guy. I would say is that, that the, Dem- the Republicans have always nominated basically the same person, someone who's solid on that outsider <laughs> thing and who has, who has done as much as they possibly can to minimize the, the values gap. The, the Democrats, this is who they've, they've nominated. One time they nominated someone who got both parts, and that was Deval Patrick, right? And he won easily, right? He was the outsider from Beacon Hill. That was the perception. And he was the solid Democrat values-wise, and he won easily and then won the second time even when he was no longer. Not even just a solid Dem values-wise, but this sort of prophet of a new age of optimistic politics. But I would say that that was more to do or as much to do with being an outsider Good point. Than, his, than, than the particular policies he was That's talking fair. about. The other true outsider that they've nominated in the 20, last 25 years who was able to take that mantle was John Silber. And what happened? He lost the values part to Bill Weld. Bill Weld, by the time of the election, was the values guy. And all the Democrats flipped. And, you know, and that turned out to be a very close election, but which Bill Weld won. The other three, putting aside Mark Roosevelt, but the other three, including Martha Coakley, are very much what I would call one foot in, one foot out in terms of insider-outsider. Uh, Scott Harshbarger, Attorney General, uh, the Treasurer, uh, Shannon O'Brien, and now Martha Coakley. Both cases, and now I think this third case, ended up being a neck-and-neck fight, which in those two cases the Republican won by a slight margin. And now we're going to see whether it's basically the same thing, you know, decided at the end by who tilts it one way or the other at the end. That's my sort of grand theory. No, I think that's pretty good. Let let me ask you a question, though. I'm waiting for Baker to attack Beacon Hill. Will you know yes. will that come in this election or is that antithetical to Charlie two point I think Baker's only chance of being elected is to play on the the sentiment of people who were essentially Democrats but don't want um 
the governor's office and the legislature dominated by the Democrats. Right. Or, to put it bluntly, someone who lacked as a check on, right. you know, the, the, on the, 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 the crooks in the legislature. Right. And in my sort of grand theory thing, the Republican sort of gets that automatically, that, that they will be a check. And the Demo- But it does, it's not, I don't think it's as much about, oh, we need the other party in. It's we need an outsider in. And, and that's why Deval Patrick had that, you know, oh, I can be the check on them because they all hate me and, you know, or I'm not one of them. And you can see that Martha Coakley has tried to play this, you know, in, in her ads when she's like, oh, the Democratic Boys Club doesn't want me. You know, the other piece of it, of course, is he, the uh, attacks on Deval Patrick as a manager. Again, he won't attack uh, Deval Patrick values and priorities and policies, but uh, as a manager. Uh, but yes, he, there has been more of it, I think, particularly towards targeted audiences. Well, Deval as a manager the last two years has been a disaster. Yes, and, and that, that was the, the core of Charlie Baker's speech at the Republican State Convention. He has not been as forceful about it on the campaign trail, I would say. Yeah, if he said what Peter just said there... People might say he's too angry, right? <laughs> That's right. He's got to, you know, yeah. <laughs> blow back at him. Let's move on and talk about former Boston Mayor Tom Menino's new book, an advanced copy of which I hold in my hand. Uh, we have Tom Menino standing. It looks like he's kind of levitating over a, <laughs> a bronze-colored strip no on cane. the bottom of the book. The title is Mayor for a New America. And let me just read a bit of the blurb. When Thomas Menino stepped down from office as one of the longest-serving major city mayors in the nation's history, he was among the most popular politicians in modern memory. In Mayor for New America, Menino gives a play-by-play look at how he managed to wield political influence while staying fiercely loyal to the interests of the people he was elected to serve. What do you two think of what you have either read in this book or read about this book? Um, It's an excellent history of the 20 years, certainly a history written from the mayor's office. It is um, uh, very one-sided. You see glimmers of the the hidden gangster in Menino come out here. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite parts, I love the contempt he occasionally shows for people. Like, he quotes Mayor Collins characterizing the Boston City Council for incoming Mayor Kevin White when he refers to them as a bunch of pygmies. Now, you know, bear that in mind. They, they are largely, a, they're, they're now a bunch of pygmies who try to act like they're Bantu warriors. You know, um, I, I, unfortunately, there's no... Scrum's getting anthropological here yeah, today. There, there, there's, there's, it, it's really unfortunate that there's no opportunity to talk about the, you know, 20-plus percent raise, these guys who have essentially no responsibility at trying to give themselves. Well, that's how you get good people to run. Well, but, that, that, you know, that, that's my line is that Bill Linehan uh, wants to raise the salary so that we can encourage people of a higher quality than Bill Linehan to get into office. But I I digress. (laughs) There's some great slashing attacks on the unions. Um, He's pretty candid in his take on on the unions and the difficulty that he had with the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association over the years years, uh, with the firemen. For example, picketing policemen cursed me. Picketing firemen spat on Angela, Tom Menino's wife. Fire was that much worse than police. He goes on, I noticed a difference between the public safety unions on the picket line. Despite their higher pay, firefighters tend to be angrier. 
it's pretty blunt stuff right there. Well, remember that uh, it was the firefighters union that uh, really attempted to embarrass and humiliate him on the national stage in 2004 uh, with their picketing uh, uh, around the 2004 Democratic National Convention that he was hosting here in Boston. So uh, aside from everything else that, that happened between them, uh, there was a real it, – it's interesting because I have not read the book. I've, I've poked into it little bits and pieces and I've read what other people have been uh, writing about it, but I have not had a chance yet to read through it. But it was interesting. We, we were talking uh, and you were reading me some of that stuff about the, his observations about how the firefighters are in constant danger of, uh, of being decreased That's as, right. as fire decreases, but there will always be crime. Well, wait a minute. Crime has actually decreased by, by much greater amount than fire. Uh, in Boston, why why haven't we had you know? And, and of course, of course, the reality is that both the fire and the police department have found ways to pad themselves through politics and structural. And that's stuff, not so. the only bit of of dubious uh, analysis in here. I know from the piece that Michael Levinson wrote in the Globe. I, I'm just dipping into the book now myself. But Mike Levinson pointed out that uh, in the book, Mayor Menino takes credit for helping Governor Patrick win election yeah, in which 2006. Is, which is, Ridiculous. As far as I can tell, omitting the fact that he supported Tom Riley and that there was no way that Deval Patrick yeah, was going to lose to Kerry Healy. That's poetic license. <laughs> that's poetic license. Now, I, you're laughing as you say that, but do you think that when you are an elder statesman like Tom Menino, um, who we should mention has also been you know, battling some pretty serious health uh, problems in, in recent years, do you really think that you're entitled to, you know— I think this is the right place to use the cliche gild the lily that much and not get you know, called on I'll it. I'll tell you, he's writing a memoir. Maybe he's not gilding the lily. Um, maybe in his recollection, he did have a lot to do with it. I'm just saying we all, and I'm being dead serious. I'm not, you know, we all remember history in in different ways. Absolutely. I mean, that, that Menino, Menino in those earlier years really turned the city of Boston out for statewide Democratic offices. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's worth a footnote. But in that race, Menino didn't have much to do in the personal sense with Deval Patrick's victory, but he had a lot to do with the Democrats sweeping. You know, they carried Boston. I'm just saying they carried. Do you, do you well, really think you did? I mean, I, I had this big exchange on Twitter with a bunch of other people about this, and Paul McMorrow from Commonwealth Magazine I'm not entirely sure how he does it. He takes all this heavy data that just gives me <laughs> data, a headache, and he know. manages yeah, to, to know you know turn that. it into compelling charts and, and graphs yeah. and whatnot. But he seemed he was going back and forth with Howard Leibowitz, who used to work for both yeah, Menino yeah. and and Mayor Flynn. And I, I, the impression I had was that Paul made a pretty compelling case that if you look at the data, you know. Tom Menino did not help either Governor Patrick win uh, in 2006 or Elizabeth Warren. He yes. might have helped her, but he wasn't as well, instrumental in beating Scott no, Brown no. as the mayor would like us to no, think. No, no, but, but that, that, that's uh, – look at the East Boston Casino. The mayor's ability to influence things on the precinct level has always been grossly well, underestimated. And, that, and, and that's what – you know, that, that's why it is interesting to see um, that, he, that he wants to – portray himself as having been a successful machine politician right up to the end when clearly that was not the case. I mean, you know, you can go through, uh, you know, uh, a lot of examples where his influence clearly was not the case. But it, but it's fascinating to me at sort of a bigger level that was sort of my initial take at seeing the title of the book and, and the initial things I've seen about the book, which is that 
that here's a guy who I think of and have often written of as the the last great 20th century mayor of uh, of America, you know, in the, in the sense of, and I mean, great, not necessarily in the sense that, you know, uh, by the way, we, we should, you know, in, in full disclosure, we all worked for the Phoenix, which I believe endorsed anything that ran against Tom Menino for 16. Anyone who ran against Menino <laughs> would most likely, if they walked, if they were upright and breathed, they would get our endorsement. But at, at but, the same time, enjoyed total access to the mayor. Oh, great. Um, good relationship. Of, oh, and I vividly remember but, him coming in for an editorial board meeting uh, some politicians, I won't name names, did not enjoy getting grilled by Stephen Mindish, the publisher <laughs> of The Phoenix, or other people yep. who were on the table. And my recollection he is of Mayor Menino coming in on, I think, a Saturday morning yep. and, you know, bringing the obligatory uh, stash of Dunkin' Donuts product. Oh, no, wherever they were. They yeah, were, it was, were yeah, they it was a bakery. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, good for him. Kudos yeah, yeah. to him then. And, and then commencing to have this scintillating performance where he... <laughs> kind of parried anything we threw at him, seemed yep. to be enjoying the entire exercise. Yep. And I walked out of there thinking just that was a hell of a lot of yep. fun. Listen, the yep. reason we got along well with Menino is I, I think we all we all wrote about him. I anonymously as an editorial writer, David knew under your own name. We always respected him yep. as a political force and would take issue with him. And, you know, uh, we'd fight back. See, I, I'll tell you, I... I all statesmen, all major politicians exaggerate their own importance. Yeah. You don't, and all I'm saying is you read Churchill's memoirs and you think Dunkirk was a victory. <laughs> they lost at Dunkirk. That that Mayor Menino has exaggerated some things does not surprise sure, me. Sure, and, and, and that doesn't surprise me at all. And that's, you know, and, and, you know, and, and I look forward to reading the book. You know, making big X's of saying he's lying about this. You know, and that's that's what we do. And you know, and that's what we did for all his years in office. You know, like you know, we'd get his press release. He didn't do this. You know, uh, and, and uh, um, but but what I was going to say is that that it's fascinating to me that he's he's sort of trying to portray himself rather than what I was saying is the the last great mayor of the 20th century as the first great mayor of the 21st century. It's very much like here I'm I'm a forward person. I'm I'm something to learn from for America going forward that that other mayors and 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 it's such a it, he is I mean for all of his positive attributes that I do credit him for and and by the way many progressive you know in in terms of uh, his attitude towards race and and uh, um, gay and lesbian gay rights, lesbian rights, rights and, and and much else, but the truth is that he's he's a very old school machine politics. Help those who have helped you, hurt those who have hurt you, and and, and that's his whole career base. So, and the stuff he's talking about the the feuds, the the very personal feuds with the with the unions, keeping the, fear alive, the, the helping helping. Tom Riley over uh, over Deval Patrick to the bitter end, helping helping uh, you know Elizabeth Warren over Barack Obama and and uh, uh, um, I'm sorry Elizabeth Warren uh, but uh, Hillary Clinton over Barack Obama and, and on one after another after another uh, he was always behind on on where the city was moving to and the state was moving to and. Uh, you know, in the whole machine politics, which stopped working slowly but surely over time because that because people no longer vote, you know, the way they're, they're told by their ward bosses, you no, know, no, I, I agree and, with you. And, but, and, it's but... Just, and that's to me, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying he shouldn't write whatever he wants to write. I'm just, that, that's my sort of meta take uh, of sort of but how he's trying to portray it, himself it, versus it, the reality. Isn't, it, isn't there a sort of wonderful paradox at work here? He may have been on the wrong side in all these other battles, but no one could dislodge him. Everyone right. was scared the bejesus of him. True. And what, what, 
what is um, what is noteworthy about Menino was his sheer force. The the fact he was a fact. Mm-hmm. He was a fact in Boston politics, in 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 as a result in Massachusetts politics in a way that's very hard to remember in recent memory. I mean, you look at Ray Flynn now, who who's sort of a you know a caricature uh, of himself. You know, Menino lasted longer than anyone. He's got a I, Harvard degree. I, <laughs> he has a book. No, I just I mean totally that agree with all uh, with all of that. He's a professor, as he and, likes and, to He has superintendent. You know, politics is about performance. Listen, I will no doubt write a scathing review. Of <laughs> but what what we can't lose sight of is that Menino, you know, despite his ill health, he walked out of office. On, on he the, wasn't carried uh, out. He wasn't ridden out. Uh, that's all true. And I've often thought, by the way, that, that he... Uh, that one of the things that kept him in office and kept him wanting to be relevant was seeing Ray Flynn become irrelevant and not wanting to be that guy. You know, not wanting to be the guy who didn't have invites to things and was standing in the back well, of the room ignored. But, but what I wanted to, to, to also say is, is that, it's, that while all that was true about his presence and the fact of him, it's also been very surprising to me how quickly it's become not his city anymore. To me, it feels very much like... I don't feel like we're you – know, like it doesn't feel like, oh, yeah, he's not mayor anymore. It feels like a whole different city. It feels like a whole different city hall. It, it also – I have to say the, the election of, of Marty Walsh was an enormous repudiation of him. He had, he had you know, certainly in the last you know, eight years or so, ten years, been the leading uh, proponent of that the mayor has to be the strong voice against the unions. And, and the union guy got elected and – and clearly, a guy that Menino didn't like, and and the the city is becoming Marty's now very quickly. Well, but, that may just be my perception, but that, that, I think your bigger point is extremely well taken. I just want to mention a footnote that I came across in in uh, reading some of Menino's book today. He's talking about going back and forth with the BPPA and the firefighters. Here's the footnote: I was a pro-union mayor. For example, I took the side of SEIU janitors in their struggle for higher wages and better health care, helping settle a 2002 strike on terms favorable to the janitors. And then that's where it ends. So yeah. he's clearly, you know, sensitive to the perception that you just outlined. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying he's right, but he's trying to push back against it a bit in this book. Yeah. Peter. Well, that, that, that's all natural. But, you know, let's look at the way they compare the way Menino went for revenge and the way Deval Patrick went for revenge. You know, Deval Patrick in the waning days of administration dismisses these two faceless bureaucrats months after, you know, years, years. after they've dissed his brother-in-law. Pushing his brother uh, to, pardon me, brother-in-law to register as a convicted sex offender. Mm-hmm. You know, Menino, for a long ago forgotten slight, whatever it was on the part of Don Chafaro, you know, holds up, I think recklessly held up. It was yeah. bad for the city, but nevertheless is a piece of revenge just to hold up building this huge skyscraper and do it by just saying, oh, you know, no one likes tall buildings. You know, the FAA wouldn't have... Menino just made stuff up, but isn't, and he got away with it. But, now, but I'm exactly not saying my, that's right. No, but that's exactly sort of my point. But, that, he, he is the last great 20th century mayor. You can't do that stuff. Nobody oh, wants no, that anymore. No, no, they mayor don't want vindictive it, but, autocrat. but what, I'm, what, what I'm saying is, is someone who spent most of Menino's administration 
criticizing him. I'd rather make a career out of criticizing Mayor Menino than in supporting Deval Patrick. There's more <laughs> honor in it. <laughs> I that can't argue with is that. probably as good a spot as any to mention that we here at the Scrum are kicking around the idea of a Scrum book club. All right, what do you think? Should this be the first book? Go with Tom Menino, Mayor for New America for book one? I think we should throw that up to, to those who might participate. I, I, and, and you know what? All the nasty things we said about the mayor, he'll forgive us because we made his book our first <laughs> I choice. I love it. Artful. <laughs> All right. We'd like to hear actually what you think about this Scrum Book Club idea. So please email us at scrum at WGBH.org. Or you can tweet us at D Bernstein at Kansas or at Riley Adam. That is actually going to do it for this week's Scrum. Remember, next week uh, you'll have a chance to learn how to win one of the coveted half dozen tickets that we have for the first and final one-on-one debate with Martha Coakley and Charlie Baker. I'm Adam Riley. The team here includes WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis. And then we've also got WGBH political analyst David Bernstein. David, a pleasure. Will, will, the, will the scrum guests get scrum shirts to all wear, like in a group? I don't see how we have a choice. <laughs> now that I've said it. <laughs> <laughs> we also have a blog, which you can find at blogs.wgbh.org scrum. Our producer is Abby Ruzica. Our engineer today was John Parker. And The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.